Hindu Muslim divide has been going on for a, some period of time, particularly five, six years, it has become much worse now in the five, six days because the blame game is going on. Hi, this is Eric Bagley in Stockholm, Sweden. Time now for episode 8 of Corona Crisis Once Upon a Pandemic. A little later on in the program, we'll be talking to uh, Ashok Swain, Professor of Peace and Conflict Research in the UNESCO Chair of International Water Cooperation at Uppsala University. We're going to talk to uh, Professor Swain about uh, the situation in India and also draw upon some of his expertise on uh, peace and conflict research to get a bit of a bigger picture on the uh, coronavirus crisis in uh, the global south. So that'll come up a little bit later on in the episode. Right now, we got Mark Vandenbosch. You know, Mark, when we started this podcast, uh, not that long ago. It seems like an eternity ago in some ways, but uh, a few weeks ago when we started this podcast, I don't think we really realized exactly how much uh, how much of an outlier Sweden would turn out to be in terms of the uh, global battle against the uh, COVID-19 pandemic and uh, more and more media attention being uh, focused here on Sweden, what's happening here, this kind of experiment that the Sweden, I don't think, really wants to be seen as as a global outlier in this response to the pandemic. Certainly is becoming that way. Trump, uh, once again, uh, mentioned to Sweden in a press conference, talking about the herd, the herd, and that Sweden is suffering greatly because it's taking this alternative pathway. So we find ourselves in kind of an interesting position here, talking about the coronavirus uh, from Stockholm. Exactly. And it's something that we called, actually, in the very first episode, the fact that things are being done differently here. And there are definite consequences that at this point cannot be denied. We've had some statistical analysis done on this already a few weeks ago, and we compared uh, through one of our experts the different mortality rates in different Nordic countries. And when uh, we looked at this two, three weeks ago, when everybody was basically still gauging how they were going to address that, the uh, rates were fairly similar between countries in the Nordics. I'm talking about Norway, Finland, Denmark, and Sweden. However, the other countries countries instituted some very draconian restrictions, mirroring some of the things that have been done in the rest of Europe and in the United States, while Sweden went a different way. And the hypothesis at the time is that there would start to be some some deviations in the curves. And there certainly has been. At this point, I'm actually looking at the latest charts right now. And the total confirmed deaths per million in Sweden as of a couple of days ago were 88, whereas the average is only 1.7. So the rate at the moment in Sweden is considerably higher than the other countries. Now, this is per population. And of course, will this strategy in the long run be effective? Will we get this herd immunity that we've been discussing, that Trump talks about also at his press conferences? Or will this turn out to be a poor choice? We don't know yet. I think it's something we'll be talking about in every episode. And I think we should perhaps devote an entire episode on the idea of herd immunity, because it seems like there is some disagreement on exactly how immune you can potentially become after having uh, the virus, uh, whether you'll be for a certain amount of time or whether you have some sort of partial immunity. Interesting that you bring this up because there was actually some medical evidence that came out in the news about two, three days ago out of South Korea, one of the countries that has been very successful in mitigating the crisis. And they're seeing that a lot of people who had been cured, who had tested negative after having had the disease, are starting to test positive again. And they're digging into the data trying to find out why that is. So there's definitely some question about this herd immunity concept, because if it turns out that we can get it several times over the course of a year, then of course the whole strategy <laughs> falls apart, right? We have a lot more to talk about in, regarding Sweden, but uh, Mark, you want to go uh, do your 360 around the world a little bit before yeah. we uh, get back to uh, our uh, own uh, geographical location in the capital of Sweden, one of the most affected areas, the most affected area in this country at least, and uh, certainly uh, up there internationally as well. 
Right. Stockholm specifically has, I think, been victimized far more than some of the other big uh, municipalities in Sweden. And one of the reasons for this, uh, certainly I'm sure different factors in play, but one of them is uh, we have a fairly heavy concentration of people that have come to Sweden and they live in multi-generational housings and, of course, don't have the same socioeconomic outlooks as, as some of the people who have been here for a long time. That seems to be a correlation in terms of how likely people are to get the coronavirus and how likely they are to, unfortunately, pass away from it. And this is a trend that you've seen throughout the world. Uh, unfortunately, even in the United States, the African-American community has been far more impacted. The rest of Europe as well, you can see that people from poor areas in Spain and Italy, uh, the ratios are up to seven to one more likely to get this disease. And this ties in a little bit in terms of what our expert today will talk about in the situation in India, which uh, I think is a definitely a storm brewing. And, but in terms of the highs and lows, and on my quick 360, I think another thing to talk about is how this brings out the worst and the best in people. Now, obviously, there's a lot of medical health professionals that are dedicating themselves and putting themselves on the line and many, many other people in society to try to help others who are being impacted by this. And that's terrific. But then <laughs> there's some people out there who really don't seem to get it and somehow seem to feel that they're sort of above the fray. Uh, there was a news story a couple of days ago about a uh, chartered jet plane from London to the south of France where a Croatian businessman, supposedly a real estate tycoon of some sort, whatever that means, flew in a bunch of friends of his, including some young ladies, into a private jet and he'd rented a big villa on the south of France in Cannes, where he thought he could party during Easter weekend. And the French authorities, since all of France is in lockdown, of course, put a stop to that. So when they landed in Marseille and had some helicopters as well that had been chartered to come and get them to fly them to Cannes, the French authorities put a stop and, and actually arrested the helicopter pilots and, and then sent everybody back. Now, the Croatian guy who orchestrated the whole thing didn't really understand. He said, what's the big deal? Can I just pay a big fine? I have lots of money. Let me pay the fine so we can go and party, please. In other words, <laughs> he doesn't get it. He probably should have chartered a plane to Stockholm instead and rented an island out in the archipelago here. You're Unfortunately, you're absolutely right. But I really hope that Sweden and Stockholm doesn't become some, some sort of haven for people trying to escape this outbreak. <laughs> yeah, and as you mentioned, Mark, and I certainly do think that the demographic dimension of this crisis will be one of the big stories, one of the biggest uh, long-term stories that uh, we take from this crisis and learn from in the years ahead. Okay, Mark, so uh, why don't we now turn to uh, Professor Ashok Swain, born and raised in India. We can talk about the situation there and also about some of the bigger picture issues about the global south and how this pandemic might also change some of the geopolitical dimensions in the Indian subcontinent in Asia vis-a-vis China and some of the neighboring countries around India. So here's Professor Ashok Swain here on Corona Crisis, Once Upon a Pandemic. The Indian government was uh, led to react, like many other governments in the world, particularly they were aware of what is going on in China and China being the neighboring country. Uh, they were expected to be serious about this crisis much earlier, but they were not. They were till even mid-March were thinking that it will not be a crisis coming to India. Uh, so I think it was very late reactions. They were trying to send, uh, you know, export the medical uh, protection equipments to other countries. They have been even, in spite of the WHO, asking people or the countries to store the necessary medical requirements, but they didn't do that. They were exporting it. They were not even checking the people who were coming into the country. So it went on quite a relaxed way till mid-March. Then they suddenly woke up. They realized that this is coming quite uh, in a big way. Other 
you know, the countries outside China are being affected. So that's the time when they realized that this is coming. So their reaction was late, but the initially they brought out certain kind of unnecessary, based on superstitions, based on the indigenous knowledge. They tried to talk about that there are certain Ayurvedic medicines will help, the yoga will help, even drinking cow urine will help. So these are the kind of things which came out that brought out a lot of confusion in the society. Then the India's prime minister first came and tried to ask the country to observe 14 hours of lockdown, which was given to the citizens. They, they will do on themselves. So that also led to rumor, lots of rumor in the country that the coronavirus will die in 12 hours. So we are going for a 14 hours of lockdown. But what has happened, there have been a number of ways the government or the leadership didn't really give a coherent and science-based policy in the beginning. Then when really with uh, quite uh, bad, so that is the time when the India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi, he again addressed the country and what he did that he said there will be 21 days of lockdown. I mean, that you can understand, you know, in many other countries are doing this. But what happened, he went for that 21 days lockdown, only giving four hours of notice. So India is a country uh, which is uh, anyway difficult to have uh, all, all over India lockdown in 24 hours. But then you give a four hours notice. So what happened? India has uh, two, uh, nearly 150 to 200 million uh, migrant workers. They work in the urban areas. They live there temporarily. They also go back to the villages. Then when this all stopped, their jobs stopped. They didn't have any place to live because the factories or the business establishment where they are working, they were thrown out. So what happened? Hundreds of millions of migrant workers started walking back to their home 100 miles or 200 miles or even 1,000 miles. So that really created a big exodus from urban areas to the rural areas. They keep on saying that it has reached almost the stage of community transmission, almost on the verge of that. Uh, but this is what has been going on now. So we don't know yet what will happen. But the Indian government in general really testing very little, less number of people. It's a much less than anywhere. And that's where we don't know exact picture how much actually the number of people are affected. But by saying that, I think the response has been, which I didn't really elaborate in, because when in the beginning they were trying to blame China, but what has happened in the last 10, 12 days or 8, 10 days, they have started blaming the Muslims. There was a Tablighi Jamaat. It's a kind of Indian origin uh, Islamic cult organization. It has uh, wings all over the, particularly in different parts of Asia and some parts of Africa uh, and Middle East. So they were organizing a Jamaat congregation in Delhi in the middle of March. And I think that's what was also got with the government permission. But that congregation had some number of people, those who were affected with the covid what has happened in the last four or five days, the Indian government is actually going around trying to test the people, those who had gone to this congregation, mostly Muslims. So they are what they are saying that the number of India's positive cases are mostly coming from this Islamic congregation. One thing is that they're only testing these people. They're not testing in general. So if you if you look at the kind of statistics coming out, the, the sampling are been very, very specifically to the Muslims. And I think that's that has given a huge I mean, India has become a very Hindu-Muslim divide has been going on for some period of time, particularly five, six years. It has become much worse now in the five, six days. 
because the blame game is going on and particularly the various media outlets even the government organized are blaming the muslims now so that is the situation at present so as you mentioned the blame games have started and uh, india seems like it's relatively early on in this crisis the death rate seems uh, very low especially considering the size of uh, india's population and the density of the population there what are your um, professor swain what are some of your greatest fears and uh, what do you think are some of the sources of perhaps optimism inside of indian society that might perhaps help contain this outbreak or do you just see no silver lining uh, to the situation uh, the indian society is still uh, strong while the state has probably failed quite a lot the society still can uh, possibly come up to certain kind of challenges uh, india had certain basic medical equipments medicines uh, and the medical professionals are available in the country we might question on the quality and all kinds of things but at least there is a number of health workers are still there the problem has been that if it goes to the rural areas and that's where the situation will be much more problematic because mostly these kind of medical facilities are available in the urban centers because of the migrant workers moving to the villages this is getting really challenge if it goes into the village areas and spreads a uh, community transmission takes place at the village level in a big way but my hunch is that because it's moving slowly in india particularly in, i mean we might doubt the statistics or as i said they are testing many less number of people so if india survives this crisis it will be more of a lock rather than a plan or rather than an action but the real question whether uh, how the country will be able to cope it up particularly it's a poor workers uh, you know informal sector is almost 400 million people work in the informal sector and they have been having serious problem i think yesterday ilo has brought out a report that these people will probably move back to the poverty level india was going through the an economic crisis for the last couple of years but it's getting going to get much worse also if they survives on the health why as a matter of accident there will be an economic issue there will be health issue and there is will be also a very big food insecurity problem you know it's an agriculturally very important time period and if you have put the lockdown if you don't able to do for the agricultural uh, work then you will have a serious problem of finding food for 1.3435 billion people in for the coming months peace building is one of your areas of expertise and do you see this as having any influence on how countries move towards a more peaceful coexistence or do you see this as increasing the risk of conflict it has to be looked at in a very different stages at the global level if you ask the countries among the countries we are seeing the relationship rather than a coming world coming together at this point of time when the crisis is such a huge in nature the world has never witnessed this kind of crisis particularly after second world war so you expect the countries to come together but it hasn't taken place we have been blaming each other all the time and the fight the struggle or the accusations between the china and the united states uh, forget other countries but the, between these two are really going getting nasty to nasty uh, every day we are seeing a very divided world while we were expecting the world should have understood from its past experiences that this is the time to come together rather than blaming each other then coming back to the specific questions of two ways 
once the operations like if you look at it, the previous crisis when the particularly when the hiv aids was really a big issue in africa we realized how that kind of pandemics can really affect the peace operations the peacekeeping peace operations because of the corona crisis there are a number of peacekeeping operations have been affected at this point of time because they usually keep shifting or the new forces from other countries come and replace the existing forces that has stopped forces those who want to disturb the peace they are not being restrained because of this coronavirus crisis so i think we will see for some time now we will see that there are the the people those who want to disturb the peace or what we call the spoiler of the peace getting an advantageous time at this point of time when the state actors are on particularly the international community is engaged in or or careful about the corona crisis then going to the peace building part peace building has been always at in our at least for the for some time that we as i mentioned that you need to uh, get your economy in order because if you have to have a fast economic development to bring certain kind of economic and political stability in the country if we want to do that that kind of peace building operations then we will be you know destroying or ignoring environment more and more Uh, and we know that if you ignore environment ignore sustainable development the conflict will come back so i think the the peace building operations will be more geared towards faster economic development but that will give us the or make it much more likelihood of the conflicts coming back as you mentioned this is the most serious crisis since world war 2 and of course the world is very different now than it was at the end of uh, the second world war uh, obviously there's going to be changes in the international order in the uh, wake of this uh, crisis what uh, implications do you see uh, professor swain for global governance as we know it uh, in 2020 up until now and uh, also the 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 parallel of uh, economic globalization do you see this as having a fundamental effect on, on these sort of structures of international relations at this point of time you uh, the world was expecting the free world to come together give the leadership when it was needed and try to find a way out of this crisis unfortunately the free world which is led by a leader in the united states uh, has failed to give that kind of lead to the world as uh, particularly even to the free world so i think this is where we are supposed to be giving it a united fight under the leadership of united states hasn't really worked out we see at the same time the china was rising china has become a huge economic power before but the coronavirus crisis in spite of the fact that it started from china but china has already come back out of it it will have some kind of economic impact but they the the type of country china is will able to probably minimize the economic impact than what we will have in the other parts of the world particularly in north america and in europe so i think the divide will become much more apparent much more clear much more stronger in favor of china in the coming days or months and china has also able to uh, manage after recovering from the crisis has able to take in certain kind of leadership role in providing medical equipments providing doctors providing financial support to number of countries those who are suffering from this crisis so i think what we are going to see that while the free world leadership under 
Donald Trump has really not didn't come up to the kind of face the situation that China has really sped up and China has really made it much more advanced in its cause of projecting itself as the next world leader. And I think we are seeing that will be much more forcefully coming in the near future. How that will work, how that is going to help or put or not help the international society, of course, China lacks the moral power to lead morally this world into a human way. And I think that's where the, we are seeing that we are putting the world to a very different direction that we had expected the world will take after the end of the Cold War. If I can ask uh, one final question, uh, Professor Swain, um, in terms of what you just said there about China and uh, India's relations with China, if we put the, the geopolitical position of India in context of Asia, of the world, and particularly in relation to China, a country that India has had long-term tensions with, how do you see this this change in the, in the international order affecting India and how will India react? Will there be pushback or will there be some sort of new um, realignment between China and India in that part of Asia? India used to play a kind of balancing role between China and the United States, particularly for the last few decades now. But what has happened in the last five, six years, when the Narendra Modi government came to power, he went uh, quite closely with the United States. So there has been an, um, the China relationship between China and India has been much better in the last few years. Particularly, India didn't even participate in Belt Road program of G. India had all other kinds of different kind of questioning the China's role. In short, India went with the United States. But China has become much bigger economically, much more powerful politically. China has many more friends in the neighborhood of India. Most of the countries around India in South Asia are with China, particularly Pakistan. Pakistan has been with China's long-time friend. So I think that was China, though directly not really going against India, but China has really surrounded India with its own uh, allies. Uh, so India has uh, India is economically much weaker than China. India will be much more probably weaker after the corona crisis. Uh, India has been politically insignificant in South Asia in that sense, particularly because of all its neighbors have now with China. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a somehow the reaction of India towards China has been very bitter uh, in recent years and how that will be probably much more worse in the coming years. But I think what we are saying, probably India will not have the gumption to take up a fight with China because of this present situation, because the power relationship really goes quite strongly in favor of China. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Ashok Swain. Thank you, Eric. It's nice talking to you. 